I'll kind of forge forward here. Can everybody hear me okay? And uh, there we go. Not yet. Okay. I think we're getting there. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. My name's Tim. It's just a privilege to be here and uh, have the opportunity to share with you here this morning. Um, you know, I got to I got to thinking maybe I should embarrass Luke Bergman and Chris Cavanaugh and kind of compare their beards to mine. You know, that would be an embarrassment for them, I'm sure. Uh, we're actually in this kind of this uh, facial hair growth contest, and uh, I don't think I'm faring too well, but we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. I had kind of a weak moment this week. I almost let, decided to you know throw in the towel, or some would say pull out the razor, but uh, I decided to hang in there. And uh, some would call that a moment of strength, not a moment of weakness. But uh, anyway, we're uh, having fun with our little beard going here. Uh, we're also having fun with... And it's called the Gospel-Centered Discipleship. And, um, you know, it's, it's really an encouraging book, so much so that we thought we as a church would go through it this spring. There's eight chapters in this book. And so every Sunday morning, that will be the focus for eight weeks, starting last Sunday. Today will be chapter two, and uh, we'll continue on for another six Sundays. We're also uh, discussing this book here in our small groups on Wednesday nights. And, of course, if you're not in a small group, be sure to catch someone if you'd like to have an invitation to get out and join in with some others on Wednesday night and to go over this book. Chapter 1 was introduced by Rich last Sunday, and that was more or less defining gospel-centered discipleship and really what that really means and what it should mean. And discipleship sometimes means more than we give it credit to mean, and that was addressed last Sunday. Today, Chapter 2, which I was kind of happy for this assignment since it's kind of a short one there, uh, I kind of, you know, the sigh of relief when Rich got number one, did number one. But uh, with chapter two, it's really now the goal of discipleship. What is the goal of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? And what would that look like? And what we should aspire to be as disciples of Jesus? And so that's what we'll be talking about today is chapter two of this book, uh, The Goal of Discipleship. We have a few verses we want to share with you this morning. But what do you say? We open in a word of prayer and, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day you've given us. It's a gift. Every moment's a gift. Every breath's a gift. Lord, uh, you've uh, brought us out of a kingdom of darkness and you brought us into a kingdom of light uh, as Christians who believe in you as our Savior. And Father, we thank you for that. Thank you that you saved us and you're, in a sense, saving us uh, to the day that we will see you face to face. Lord, we're just uh, so grateful for your love. Lord, I sometimes just want to remind myself of how lost I've been and am and uh, how needy I am of you. It's uh, easy sometimes to forget uh, what that kingdom of darkness was really like. But Lord, we, uh, we're grateful that you long for us to be with you forever. And we just pray that we grow in the knowledge of you and the grace of you here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, some of you guys, I don't know if, uh, how many have ever heard the term photobombing? Has anybody heard that? A few people have. I, maybe not as many as I thought. It is helpful having a teenage daughter at home who keeps me abreast of all the cutting 
cutting edge technology and terminologies and all. But yeah, photo bombing is uh, is something that was really is really real. I didn't believe Fiona at first, but then I got online and Googled photo bombing, and sure enough, there really is such a thing, and uh, it's actually fairly prevalent. In fact, I I pulled a few photographs of some photo bombing uh, taking place, and in this first photograph, you'll see that uh, you know that it is definitely a very real thing. I'm going to see if this will advance. Uh, we may have to you know, use the earlobe method today. There we go. Now here's a couple young ladies. It's probably a very important event in their life, a very big occasion. They haven't seen one another since they were children in the church's children church program. And so they're really excited to be there. But who should come along but some stranger in the background, and he is really an overt photo bomber. I mean, he doesn't care who knows it. And uh, that's one thing I learned last night, Googling photobombing, is there's a lot of different kinds of photobombers. And this guy is definitely an overt one. There's a couple guys off to the side there, too. Some guys are inadvertent photobombers. They don't even know they're photobombing. That's another category. I think they fall into that category. But if you'll notice, you don't even look at those two girls in those photographs. All you really see is the photobomber, uh, the guy in the middle there. Yes. Now, some guys are a little more, uh, oh, I don't know, they're, they're probably a little more discreet, like this one. Um, but if you know, this is a very attractive young lady. Uh, you know, you, you just want to look at her, right? But, of course, you can't because you've got a photobomber there. And uh, someone who's not nearly as attractive as that young girl, but nonetheless, all you can do when you look at that picture is look at that guy in the background. And he is kind of a, what you would call, I don't know, kind of a subtle photobomber, unlike that other guy that we just looked at. And then you'll also, as we advance, there's some that are really professionals. I mean, I don't understand it. These guys, this guy is good. This guy is really good. And uh, I mean, he is so good. All you can see is his eye in the middle there. He photobombed that couple with his eye. That's how good some photobombers are. And in that inset, you can actually see it enlarged, so you can see that guy's eyeball in that inset. So yeah, that's really where we separate the men from the boys, uh, the women from the girls. This is really, you know, reaching a level of photobombing that's really, be don't even try that at home. I mean, this is really good. And you know what? Sometimes photobombing animals, animals have been known to photobomb people. And, you know, it's just amazing how this photobombing is getting around. And, uh, and not only that, but animals will photobomb animals. And that's kind of a crazy thing, too. Here we have... Here we have a cow photobombing a horse that's stuck in a fence. And, you know, actually, one thing I learned when I studied this photobombing last night is not only are there a lot of kinds of photobombers, they utilize different techniques. Some guys will photobomb in the background. Some guys photobomb in the foreground. In fact, I'm not so sure, but I think the, I think the horse was photobombing uh, the cow in that picture. 
And in this case, yes, humans photobomb animals too. Uh, it's really, uh, it's really amazing. And in this last picture, this really is scary. This last one because this was clearly one of the most important days of this poor young girl's life uh, with some friends, and you'll never guess who photobombed her. Jesus photobombed this young lady on one of the most important days of her life. And uh, so I just don't know what to think about that. Uh, so that brings me to my first verse today. Um, now don't ask me how, but somehow it does. Uh, the first verse, though, we seriously now uh, want to look at is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. It's in your outline. Then God said... Let us, and this does link with photobombing, believe it or not. But then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, Genesis, that word means beginnings. And so it's in that first book of the Bible, Genesis, that we learn about the beginnings of all kinds of things. We learn about the beginning of the earth, the, the universe, the beginning of mankind. We learn about the beginning of sin. We learn about the beginning of languages, the beginning of nations, the beginnings of government. Uh, all kinds of beginnings are packed into the Genesis. In this verse, we learn about the beginning of mankind. And it's one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Because the word God, for example, is in the plural, is Elohim. And that I am at the end of a Hebrew word makes it plural. So we would almost want to translate it with an S. Then God's said, let us, and those pronouns are clearly plural, make man in our image according to our likeness. What an amazing verse this is. And that verb said, and uh, you always find the verb first and then ask who or what and get your subject, right? So said, who said? Well, God said. And you want your, God, your subject and your verb to, to be the same in number, so plural or singular. But that verb said is in the singular. And the word God is in the plural along with the pronouns. And so it's an interesting uh, grammatical you know, a uh, verse that speaks to the Trinity of God. Three gods in one with that singular verb. And so God in plural said, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image according to our likeness. What an amazing verse. And you know what? We were made in the Trinity. You've got a spirit, you've got a soul, and you've got a body. You've been made in the image of God, the triune God. And you know, I don't know, the spirit and the soul are so close it's hard to distinguish, but uh, the Bible can make that distinction. Hebrews says that the Bible is living and active. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, even able to pierce the distinction between bone and marrow and, and, uh, and also between soul and spirit. And so we are a triune creature, unlike any fowl of the air, or unlike any fish of the sea, or unlike any animal on the earth. Those creatures, none of them were made in God's image, as we were. And so God intended for us to be His representatives on this earth. He intended for us to be His agents on earth, kind of His extension here to this earth. And He wanted the earth to see in mankind His image. Because he built that image in us 
perfectly. We have His image in that we can love, we can create, we can communicate, we can relate with one another, with people. All of those things distinguish us from God's other creatures on this earth. But again, He made us very special with that purpose in mind that His image would be seen in us. It's kind of like I'm a a picture frame. And uh, inside that picture, in my frame, is to be seen Jesus. Is to be, God's image is to be viewed. And all of you are picture frames. And God wants the picture to be His image. Wants people to see Him in our picture. Now the problem, and as I mentioned, we learn about the beginning of mankind in this verse. But then soon we learn about the beginning of sin. Because our photo, our picture and image of God was, that's right, photobombed. And sin photobombed that picture. And it completely twisted uh, our image that we were supposed to convey of God when we were photobombed. And I kind of like this definition of sin. Any thought, word, or deed that diminishes the image of God within our within us. Anything that diminishes people's ability to see Jesus or to see God within our life, that's sin. It can be an attitude. It can be an action. It can be something you say, something you do. But because of what you say or do, people don't see that God loves the lost as much as He does because they don't see that in you. You know, you've been photobombed. And all people see is that photobomber, sin. They really don't see the image that you're supposed to portray of God Himself. And so that's uh, one of the problems. Maybe we don't see quite as well the fact that, uh, you know, God loves Christians, His children, because we've been photobombed, and we don't love them as we ought. We don't love our roommates as we ought. We don't love our husbands and wives as we ought, our children as we ought, our brothers and sisters in this very room. We don't love them as we ought because we've been photobombed. And that sin really diminishes the image of God and what God would want people to see uh, through our lives. Oh, you know, we can still see vestiges of the image of God. It's still kind of there, you know, even with the sin. We Again, it, it comes to, to varying measures and degrees, but ultimately, I mean, fundamentally, because of being photobombed, you know, we really, we're really lost. In fact, uh, we're in a kingdom of darkness is one way the Bible puts it. Uh, Eve was cursed. Adam was cursed. The ground was cursed. All creation cries out for a Savior, it says in Romans. You know, it's really a, a sad thing that happened when that sin photobombed our lives. And Adam and Eve could no longer transmit to the next generation what they no longer had, which was an eternal relationship with the living God. They had that no longer. They became mortals. And so did all of their descendants after them. And their descendants, as well as Adam and Eve, part of the curse, now face death. Physical death, spiritual alienation. We've been fallen. They were enslaved. It permeates. This photobomb permeates every aspect of our life. Our intellect, our will, our emotion. Everything about us is impacted. It's not that we're as bad as we have the potential to be. 
But fundamentally, we are blind, we are bankrupt, we're lawless, we're prone to sin. Ephesians really says it best, I think, where it says that we were, we were, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. It wasn't that you, you, know, you were spiritually dead. It wasn't that we were you know, spiritually ill or spiritually sick like many of us have been this last month. I think most of us are getting over something. I know I am. It wasn't that at all. You're actually dead spiritually because of being bombed, photobombed by sin. And God's image was diminished in our lives as a result. And the original purpose of our lives being a a mirror of His image was really snuffed. And so what God though then began to do, and we read this also in that book of beginnings, after the beginning of the world and after the beginning of man, and we learn about the beginning of sin, We also, though, then learn about the beginning of God's redemptive plan. And in Genesis, it says that God is going to send forth a Savior, a Redeemer. It's going to be a seed from the woman who would crush the serpent on his head. That was the beginning of the gospel plan to redeem us, to restore us. And that was God's intent the moment we fell into sin. is God's plan was to redeem us and to restore His image within us. God still wants people to see Him in you. He still wants that for us today. He wants all of us in this room to be a really bright, shining example of Him to this world that we live in today. I like this verse, although it's a very difficult verse. I'm going to do my best to, to try to talk about it if I can in Romans 8:29, because I think it relates to this book that we're going to be going over here this, here this spring. But here's what in Romans 8.29 we learn about God. Is that who he foreknew, even from the beginning of time, before time was even, uh, was even established, God foreknew people. And he foreknew you and he foreknew me, but who he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And of course we know he wanted Adam and Eve to bear that image. His sin again photobombed it. But he really, even Adam and Eve and every human being since, it's really been his design, his desire. He predestined folks to really be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn. He might hold preeminence of all among many brethren and whom he predestined, he called and whom he called, he justified and whom he justified, he glorified. Glorified is in the past tense. We've not been glorified if we're believers today, but it's as though it's as good as done. That's why that word is in the past tense. Everything else is in the present tense. You know, we, yeah, we, I mean, it's in the past tense because it's happened. But, but that word is in the past tense, but it hadn't happened yet. But it's as good as done. And it's an interesting verse. And some would say, well, that foreknowledge means that God foreknows the choice that some would make someday in accepting Him. But really, when you read this verse, it seems more determinative, every one of these things. Who He foreknew. I mean, God is really determining who is going to accept him one day. He foreknows that. And he predestines that. And he calls them. And they hear it. When he calls those people he's predestined, they will hear it. And they'll respond. And they'll be justified. And God justifies them. And he then will glorify them. It's a tough verse, isn't it? Because it seems to be saying that God is the one that saves us. 
and that God decided to save us long, long time ago. And then some would say, well then, Tim, does that mean that God condemns some? And the answer to that is no. And you say, well, Tim, well then how do you put these two truths together? God's sovereignty, but our responsibility in choosing to accept Jesus as a Savior. How do those two truths exist side by side? I'm going to tell you the answer right up front, and then I'm going to try to explain it. And the answer is, I don't know. But I'm still going to try to explain it anyway, which is impossible, because the best theologians who have ever lived cannot explain it. I will tell you this, we're left with one option, and that is to believe both of these truths. Both are true. It's kind of like this coin in my pocket. This is from the National World War II Memorial, and it's got two sides. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I can't see it in the light. But it's got, two, it's got two sides. And on one side is man's responsibility to be saved. And on the other side would be God's sovereignty in saving us. And you know, when you read the Bible, there's verses for both sides. You know, you'll read verses like in Ephesians that says, For by grace you're saved through faith, and that's not even of yourself. It's a gift of God. Now that speaks of God's sovereignty, doesn't it? But look at John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Or the verse in Romans where it says, How is somebody going to believe if a preacher is not sent to them? That doesn't sound like God is so sovereign that they're going to get saved even though a preacher is not sent to them. And so we see verses in the Bible that teach both of these truths. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. It's amazing. One verse here I'll read actually has both truths in the same verse. It's in John chapter 6 verse 37. However, those the Father has given me, Jesus said, will come to me. Because they've been foreknown. They've been predestined. They've been called. Jesus knows that. And they've been justified and they will be glorified. And that's why Jesus can say that whoever the Father has given me will come to me. But then he goes on, and I will never, and uh, he, he goes on, and I will never reject them, and, uh, and he'll never reject anyone who comes to him. This translation doesn't say it as clearly as the NASB, I guess. I grabbed another Bible. But the NASB says, and all who come to me will, will not be rejected. And that's what... John 3.16 certainly says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And God said that He desires all men to be saved, not just those He called. He desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so this, this truth was best described, I think, by D.L. Moody, where he described it as, as a big doorway, like that door back there. Instead of the exit sign above the door, there'd be a sign, Enter this door to be saved. Come to the, through this door for salvation. And it's a call for all people to be saved. And then you walk through that exit door or that door for salvation. You turn around and above the door it says, you've been chosen. And that's probably the best way to describe it. And really that passage, this passage, is meant for really Christians. There's no better assurance of salvation verse in the Bible than this one. I mean, I always like to take people, if people kind of wonder, boy, am I saved, or can I lose my salvation, or do I know for sure I'm going to heaven 100%, well, I'm kind of 99, but I might go to First John. You know, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. 
These things I you know, share with you who believe that you may know you have eternal life. What a great verse that is. But it's not better than this one. Because this one's even better yet. If you know Jesus. But you've been foreknown. And you've been predestined. And you've been called. And you've been justified. And you will be glorified one day. There's no better assurance verse than Romans 8 verse 29. It's really meant for Christians to be assured really of God's love and assurance in their lives. One way I also kind of just think of it as two parallel tracks of a train track. You know, they don't cross and our reason will tell us they won't cross for all eternity. A train track will go on parallel forever, right? The definition of parallel signs. But these two truths... God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. They're parallel tracks, but they cross in eternity. In the eternal mind of God, they cross. It's not a contradiction. I call it a mystery. Some things are contradictions. This is a mystery, how these truths can stand side by side. And don't let anybody suggest otherwise. No one can explain it. We just accept both truths. Some people would like not to accept both truths. We kind of want things neat and tidy. We try to tie things down in our own minds. It's because we have these finite minds that limit us. But some people will even use these truths and emphasize one side of the coin over the other. Maybe they'd say, look, I'm not going to accept Christ because I'm just one of those that hasn't been chosen. I haven't been called. I haven't been foreknown. Therefore, I'm not even going to accept Christ. Well, they're forgetting the other side of the coin. And that door, above that door it says, come on in here for salvation. And God wants them and expects them. All people, he longs for all to be saved. And they're given the, the, the gospel message. And that is true. Also, this is a mistake that some Christians can even make. Well, hey, I'm not going to share my faith if people are, you know, foreknown to be saved and God does all the saving. You know, what, what role do I need to play? And in the 17th century, that was a mistake that Great Britain, who was a Christian country at the time, was making. They didn't want to send missionaries to other parts of the world because they believed this verse that God is the one who saves. So they thought, and the dominant theology at the time was, if the heathen in Africa or India need to be saved, God will save them. We don't need to go there. But there was one man that believed both sides of the coin, not just one. And that was a guy by the name of William Carey. And he became the father of the modern missionary movement. And William Carey went to India and translated the Bible in over 20 languages. Spent his whole life doing that. And he proved that this truth is, both sides of the coin are true. He proved it, that yes, God saves, but man also is responsible to preach the word and responsible to, to accept it or not. So it's a tough one, but that is, um, you know, that is really what God wants to do in our lives. And He's the one that wants to restore us, save us, and to restore His image within us. And He's going to do that. He is absolutely destined, we're destined to see that happen. Our goal should be the same as God's, to have His image restored within us. And that's really what discipleship is, is the process of His image. Call it sanctification too, but as we become sanctified and grow in our discipleship as as one of His disciples, that image of Jesus is growing within us. 
And that's really, I think, what chapter 2 is about, is about how that image of Jesus grows within us and helps us become more mature disciples of Christ. And then this verse, and I think I need to advance this one more time here. Um, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, really gives the secret for this image of Christ to be uh, in being restored within us and growing within us. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, We all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. One person calls this change by beholding. We're changed not necessarily by memorizing more verses. You're changed into that image of Christ. That image is restored into our lives, not just by, though that is good, by reading the Bible more, though that is good, by coming to church more, though that is good, and prayer meetings, and doing all the things Christians do, taking pride in the fact that, you know, we stop cussing and, and swearing and drinking and dating girls that do those things. We stop all that. You know, we take pride in those things. But no, that's, that's not how that image is restored within us. The image of Christ is restored as we simply look at Christ and see Jesus. And it's a change that occurs through beholding Him. And that's what this book is trying to speak to. And it's so easy for us uh, to fall into this performance mentality, it is for me, you know, where I have to perform and I have to accomplish things and people won't respect me if I don't. God doesn't like me as much if I, you know, don't get in step with the rest of the Christians and this and that. I mean, it's, it's how I tend to think when really it's, we're saved by God. We're destined for glorification through God as Christians. And even His image being restored within us is simply a function of our beholding Jesus. And that's uh, such a glorious truth. You know, I was looking at this passage in context, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and I thought I might just read some of the verses that surround this verse. And it starts in verse 4, because the passage here is Paul contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. And it's kind of an interesting contrast going on here. And he's basically saying how much superior the new covenant really is. The covenant of grace. We tend to fall into the old covenant ways of doing things. When I talk about performance and, you know, boy, if you don't obey the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, you are dead. You know, and that's kind of how people viewed the old covenant. The new covenant is different. And it's superior. And it's a greater thing. And that's what we're talking about here. Living our lives in the new covenant, not in the old. And that's what Paul starts here in verse 4. We are confident, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians, we are confident of these things because of our trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we can do anything of lasting value by ourselves. Our only power and success come from God. He is the one who has enabled us to represent His new covenant. This is a covenant not written of written laws, 
In other words, one translation says it's not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And sometimes that's thought to mean, you know, the, like the Pharisees, where they would, you know, follow the letter of the law, you know, tithe, their coming and their dill and their spices, but forget the big things, you know, like mercy and love. But really, what's meant here by uh, letter of the law or written laws is the old covenant, is the Ten Commandments. And this is a covenant not of the Ten Commandments or the written laws or the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. The old ended in death. You know, if you violate the Ten Commandments, you are dead. In the new way, the Holy Spirit gives us life. And he continues this comparison of the old and the new in verse 7. The old system of law etched in stone, you know, the Ten Commandments, led to death. Yet it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. Because even the Ten Commandments, the covenant of the law, was, uh, there was a glory about it. And Moses' face just shone. He had to put a veil over his face so people couldn't see that glory of God. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already beginning to fade, which was a a picture of that old covenant. It's not a glory that would remain. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory when the Holy Spirit is giving us life? If the old covenant, which brings condemnation, again, remember the law was really simply to point us to our need for a Savior. When the old covenant which brings condemnation was glorious, how much glorious is the new covenant which makes us right with God? God does it all. God makes us right in the new covenant. In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new. So if the old covenant which has been set aside was full of glory, then the new covenant which remains forever has far greater glory. Since this new covenant gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel could not see the glory fading away. But the people's minds were hardened and even to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, a veil covers not their heads like Moses, but their their minds, their hearts, so that they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. And now the Lord is spirit. And wherever the spirit of the Lord is, he gives freedom and all of us have had that veil removed. And then this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And all of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the image, the glory of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him and reflect His glory more and more, which was the very intent from Genesis, that God's image would be within us and that we would reflect His image. And really, that is what discipleship is, is restoring that image within our lives, that image of God. And so we'll move on to this next verse. Uh, Psalm 115 because you know you don't have to tell somebody to worship that's what that previous verse in St. Corinthians is saying we become what we worship or who we worship you know you're changed you become what you worship I've mentioned this before I think but Julie and I went to Greece and we traveled around Paul's places that he went and we went to Corinth and on the Acropolis outside of Corinth there was a temple with a thousand prostitutes 
They worshipped Aphrodite. They worshipped the goddess of fertility. And the Corinthians, they ended up with all kinds of sexual problems. Many that you can read about in the letters to the Corinthians. Or you can go to Sparta and you know you see that they worshipped the god of war. And they became a very warlike culture, didn't they? That's because of the god they worshipped. You can go to Athens and they worshipped Athena, you know, the goddess of wisdom. And that's where all the scientists and all the Socrates and all the philosophers came out of was Athens, not, not Sparta. You know, it's an amazing thing to see that in the very cities of Greece. The gods that they worshipped and they were so different, these gods. And people became like what they worshipped. That's what Psalm 115 says. Why do the nations say to Israel, where is their God? Because all the other nations, you know, they had gods carved as stone like this. Well, yeah, like this duck right here, you know. They became like this. Some of the people became a wooden duck because that's what they worshipped. But this continues. Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, the Israelites would say. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And I cut that verse off short in Psalm 115 verse 2. And it, but because it continues, and I got to read that. Oh wait a minute! I think I have it on the next slide. And it continues. Those who make them become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. You know, you become who you worship, what you worship. People worship the creation. You know, you can, you know, you can worship a girlfriend, a guy friend. That's just a creation. And then you reduce God to, to what you, the person you're worshiping. You could worship, you know, some wonderful things in this world. There's people that worship animals. And they think, sometimes I think they think that animals are more important than people even. And they made animals their God. And, you know, some of these people would make, you know, wooden, wooden gods. And they'd worship these things. They'd make with their own hands. It's amazing to think about. But what's, what's bad about that is that God then is reduced to this thing. And God is so much more. You know, I had the opportunity to go to an Amish farm for a week in, in uh, Illinois. My good friend, his grandfather, was one of the bishops there. And I spent a week there. We did all kinds of things. We had fresh oats, you know, the old-fashioned way. There, there were no power lines on the roads. It's in Arthur, Illinois. The best farmland in Illinois is farmed with horses. And it was an amazing experience. And uh, we'd be out there, you know, they'd go from farm to farm and uh, every, every, the whole community does each farm uh, one by one. And so it's not a really efficient way of doing it. You know, you load up a, a, a rack of hay and then you lay down in the grass and wait for the next rack to come out. It takes a while because you put it out the rack so fast. And they had two little girls at the end of the field with bonnets on their heads and, and in a, in a, two, in a uh, horse-drawn buggy. And um, they had two big gallon jug, a, a two gallon jar of, of chocolate milk. And talk about facial hair. It's great on faces, but not in chocolate milk. Because they'd bring that out when, when the low, rack was heading into the barn. The girls would come out with this big jar of milk. And uh, there's like 30 guys out there, you know, sweating and getting the dirt off their face. They'd be drinking this chocolate milk and passing it around. 
and I grabbed that milk and there was some facial hair in that milk and, and one other thing I like my chocolate milk cold <laughs> that milk was hot as uh, you know an Illinois summer day would be and uh, but um, anyway you know, and the one thing that my friend Daryl told me, he said, Tim, the only thing I asked if we're going to spend this week with my, grand, my grandparents is uh, you can't bring a camera. And I said, why can't I bring a camera? He said, well, if you take a photograph, that's creating a graven image. And the second commandment says there should be no graven image. But, you know, what harm is there going to be to create a graven image of a human being or of me with them or anything else? That verse applies to God. When we reduce God to this image that you can hold in your hand, and God is no bigger than that, and you become what you worship, is that the God? Is that, is that what you want to become? In this case, a wooden duck? Of course not. God wants us to worship Him so that we will become like Him. And the Israelites did not need any kind of graven image to worship. Their God was in the heavens. And they wanted to worship the God of, of the heavens. The God of the Bible. Because they knew that that's who, again, they would become. Why would the nation say this? And it's so easy to focus even on ourselves. You know, and, you know, and, you know my past problems and my present issues and the future. And, you know, we become so self-oriented. You know, and that just leads to defeatism. You know, it's easy to focus on others. You know, others like me and I'm accepted. Am I as good as other people are? Or am I worse? Or how does God view me compared to them? And we compare, you know, and that's just, oh, that's just disappointing when you compare yourself with others and look at others. God really wants us to see Him more. He really wants us to behold Him and who He is and His character and His promises the fact that he saved us and we're going to heaven. It was his work. We live in this grace. I mean, there's nothing I can do to even get out from under it. That's the God that we need to be seeing. We need to be beholding because then that's the God we'll become and we'll see that image, his image restored within us as we behold him more and more. And that really is the key to discipleship. The secret of discipleship is beholding Jesus. Is beholding Jesus. The Bible had this, uh, this book had this phrase which I liked. And um, it was just, uh, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Even as Christians. And that's what I went away with in reading this book. Is wanting to remind myself every day. This great God that we worship. And to see Him and His grace and His love for me. In spite of me. And you know what? It's so freeing. It's so freeing. I don't have to put up any kind of front for you guys. I can be me. I can make mistakes even. And uh, I can say things and apologize for it or do things and apologize for it. It's okay. Because I'm, I'm beholding Jesus here. And He has... He is going to glorify me one day. Not there yet, but it's neat to know that one day I will be. And it's true for you guys as well. So I hope that this Wednesday night when we gather together, you guys can flush out all the more some of these truths from chapter 2, that we really are people that, um, that will restore God's image within us as it was meant to be by reminding ourselves of who this God is and worshiping Him 
and seeing Him and beholding Him so that we might become like Him. Let's pray and ask God to, to bless us here and we'll go on. Lord, thank You so much for this this day, this time together. Uh, Lord, I just know that I need to preach the gospel to me every day, to myself every day. Lord, I know that I uh, need to grow in understanding who You are and seeing You more clearly. It says, to the crooked you appear crooked. Lord, I, I don't want any crookedness in my perception of You. I want to see You as You clearly are because, Lord, I want Your image restored in my life. That people will, in growing ways, more and more see You in me. Lord, help us to grow in our knowledge of You and in the grace and in Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. Folks, thanks. Have a great week. Uh, We'll look forward to Chapter 3 next Sunday. And so hope you can be here for that. Thank you.